Hi, everyone. In the following episode, you will meet Travis Gibson, a former principal QA engineer at Progress. We interviewed Travis in March 2022, and we're sad to report he passed away in March 2024 after a long battle with illness. He was a true representation of our Progress Proud values, and he used his experience to serve others. In light of this, and with approval from his family, we have decided to keep this episode live as a way to honor his memory. Thank you. Hi, everyone. I'm Danielle Sotherby, and welcome to Progress Proud. So we've launched this podcast to put a spotlight on the people who make a progress. It's all about providing a glimpse into their lives outside of work and sharing their stories because we're more than just workers who log in or commute to work every day. And we're aiming to bring the human to the forefront with this podcast. For today's episode, you'll hear from Travis Gibson, principal QA engineer based in Georgia. And his life story is a whirlwind. He went from being a healthy adult to discovering that he would need a double lung transplant. What he and multiple doctors thought was a minor illness turned out to be something very serious. And after his transplant surgery, he woke up two months later with new lungs, but also with the very long road to recovery. Years later, he still feels the effects of his transplant, but despite everything, the shocking diagnosis, the surgery, the crazy side effects that people don't tell you about, he still finds time to help and serve others. He's taking everything he's been through and still going through to contribute to society and to help people who may be going through a similar journey. He talks very openly about his experience. So please enjoy this conversation with Travis Gibson. All right. So hi, Travis. Let me welcome you to our Progress Proud podcast. Hi, I'm glad to be here. Definitely appreciate having your time. Of course. When we heard about your story, we thought you would be the absolute perfect person to have, considering everything you've been through, and still finding the time, the motivation, the grace to help, to volunteer, to contribute, to serve others. That is extremely admirable. And on top of that, you're just a really cool person. (laughs) We were able to connect uh, virtually a couple of weeks ago and had an awesome conversation with you. And I just found you to be extremely pleasant. So, so excited to have you on. Thank you. All right. So first, diving in here, take me back to 2018 when you thought you only had the flu or some minor sickness. And then you got the word from the doctor that this is way more serious we need to have a double lung transplant. Can you take me through your thought process of when you heard that you needed that transplant? Like, where did your mind go? What happened? Yeah. So the end of 2016, I thought I was just sick. Thought I had the flu. You know, it was towards the end of the year and I'd done a lot of traveling and was about to head out of town again and had a cough. Thought it wasn't a really big deal. So I went ahead and went out of town. During that week, I started feeling really, really bad. So I returned from my trip early, came home, went to the doctor and they just said, you know, hey, you just have, you know, it's an upper respiratory infection. It's pretty severe. We're going to put you on some antibiotics and, you know, it should take care of itself in a week or so. About five days in, it still was getting worse. Called the doctor back and he prescribed another antibiotic. Then again, went home and and took the medicine. Another five days or so, called back and just said, look, you know, we've got to do something. This is not getting any better. I can't catch my breath. So I went in and saw him and he took x-rays and realized that this had changed from an upper respiratory infection to something a lot more serious, you know, and that was around 
probably the beginning of February of 2017, we ended up on Valentine's Day. I could not breathe. I, I couldn't breathe at all. You know, I was sitting on the chair in my kitchen, um, actually called my mom, who's a nurse. She had a pulse oximeter. And for normal people, it's supposed to be between 95 and 100% oxygen saturation, just sitting. Mine was at a 68. So I was getting absolutely no oxygen from my lungs to my bloodstream. We went off to the emergency room and the doctor that came in to see us, he looked at me and he said, I bet you you have interstitial lung disease. He said, I've seen it before. And they ran a bunch of tests on me and said, yeah, we're going to give you some steroids to see if it can help get rid of the infection in your lungs. But we need you to follow up with a pulmonologist ASAP. Did that on the following Monday, which happened to be my 40th birthday. So happy 40th to me. I was told that I needed a lung transplant and uh, it needed to be done probably within that next year. Otherwise, I wouldn't be seeing a 41st birthday. You know, so being told that it was, you know, it was a shock. I mean, I'd always been healthy. Nothing was ever wrong with me. And there's only a couple of things that went through my mind, honestly, my kids. You know, my oldest daughter, she's 20 now, but uh, she would have been about 17. I just thought about not being able to walk her down the aisle, not being able to raise my seven-year-old, and then not being able to raise my son, you know, not being able to throw a baseball with him, not being able to teach him about being a man, you know, and letting him drive my Jeep and so on and so forth. So, and, you know, the main thing, I wasn't ready to die. I wasn't ready. I was 40 years old. I had a wife and children and a loving family and, you know, a twin brother and a sister. And I just wasn't ready to die. So on your 40th birthday, that's when you were told that you needed the transplant. Yeah, they got the results from they did something called a wedge resection mm -hmm. on my lungs. And basically, they just go in three different spots on your back and they go in and cut a piece of lung out in the three different places. And they send them off and the uh, the lab results came back very, very quick mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. because it was such a severe deal. It's definitely crazy. Again, just to think about how you were healthy, everything was fine, moving along with life. You think you just have a minor illness and then it takes like the third or fourth doctor to tell you this is serious. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. The doctor that I saw in Augusta, it grew out of his wheelhouse as well. Mm -hmm. You know, he saw it and he said, you know, I'm, mm -hmm. I'm at the end of my rope. You can either go to Duke University, you can go to Emory in Atlanta, or I have some colleagues at the Medical University of South Carolina. They're all transplant centers, but we need to get you in as fast as we can. We didn't want to go to Duke. It was you have to move up there for six months, even before they'll let you in the program. I didn't want to go to Emory because some of the stories are basically they surf and turf you. Mm -hmm. They put the lungs in you and you're pretty much gone home within that week to take care of yourself, which you know, didn't fare well with me. Right. Medical University of South Carolina, we called them and they said, you know, it's going to be June before we can see you. And I was thinking, uh, that's not going to work. Mm -hmm. So we went back to the doctor in Augusta. He actually called his friend who was one of the head pulmonologists down there and they got us in quick. We were seen the beginning of March, mm -hmm. you know, and, and that's when they didn't talk about transplant right in the beginning. They wanted to try and hit it with drugs as soon as they could. So they put me on immunosuppression, put me on about 50 milligrams of prednisone a day, and they, they wanted to try and get this interstitial lung disease or 
something else is called as ground glass syndrome. Because if you look at the pictures of the lungs, it looks like somebody stepped on glass. Mm -hmm. And it's just kind of that picture you saw in my lungs. They're supposed to be, you know, they're supposed to be black for healthy lungs, just pure black. Mm -hmm. Mine are just pure white. You know, you couldn't see any black in them because this infection or whatever it was had taken them over. So we tried that for a little while and, and a couple of visits, a couple months, three, four months. And then they just realized, nope, it's not going to work. So once it was determined, yes, you're going to get the transplant. What happened next? What did you and your family need to do to prepare? Man, it was kind of like a whirlwind of things that ran through my head. We didn't want to tell everybody at first. You know, we told our close family. I told my brother and my sister and my parents and my wife told her parents and her siblings. But we didn't want to let everybody know because we didn't want people feeling sorry for us. Mm. You know, we were hitting this thing head on. We were going to do what we had to do to try and beat it. But along those lines, you know, it, it was one of the weird things I'd never thought about. I had to put my wife on all my credit cards. I had to put my wife on the mortgage because our house is under my name. So I had to handle adding the wife to the mortgage. We met with a lawyer and got a will taken care of to make sure our children were handled if something were to happen. And thank goodness, my eldest daughter would take our two youngest children to raise them. The weirdest thing, having to plan your funeral and write your own obituary. You know, you have to think about your life and you go, okay, let's sum this up in like seven sentences. You know, how do you sum that up in seven sentences? What music do I want to play? You know, do I want to have an after celebration where people can celebrate my life and not be sad about my life? Because, you know, I'm not sad. But the nurses at MUSC also said that I was fat or tubby. The doctor used the word tubby. He calls me his tubby patient. And so I attended physical therapy four days a week. They put me on an 1800 a day calorie intake. You know, it helped me get from about 240 pounds to 199 pounds in about six months. I was diligent. You know, I walked every night between six and eight miles with my brother, walked at the gym, lifted weights, did cardio, always having a full face mask with as much oxygen as I could take because, you know, without it, I wouldn't be able to do half of those things. So, yeah, there was a lot of things. We took care of the financial things, the wills and where all the bills would go. We made sure, you know, the life insurance was in place and paid, you know, we paid for the funeral. So everything's paid for if something were to happen to me. We have the columbarium where I'm to be buried. You know, everything's set. So if I were to pass away tomorrow, my wife does not have to deal with paying for a funeral, setting up the columbarium. It's it's taken care of. And so that's one good thing. I never have to worry about it again. It's done. That's a whole lot to deal with in a short amount of time. Thank you again. I have a lot of respect for you telling your story. Yeah. So you had a whole lot of planning done. A lot of things people didn't tell you about. A lot of small things you had to consider, but you somehow made it through. You somehow got prepared. And then you you have the surgery. You wake up and that's great and you're successful. Could you walk us through what the recovery process was like? My surgery was a little bit different. It was successful, but it had a lot of complications. Mm-hmm. You know, I had something called primary graft dysfunction, which is where your body automatically attacks the organs. It knows right away, these are not mine. I don't like them. I want them out of this body. So I'm going to attack them. 
with everything I have. I had CMV, which is cytomegalovirus, which my donor had, which he passed on to me. And then I had, there was one other thing. I can't remember it, but they all came from my donor. Mm. And when the doctors go over things after they get the lungs, they check in for major things, hepatitis, HIV, things like that. Mm -hmm. Um, But they can't check it for everything. I mean, there's just not enough time. They get them, they prep them. Um, Not sure where they had to go, but they can fly up to a thousand miles from the hospital to get them. Oh, wow. So it goes out like 250, 500, 750, and a thousand, which South Carolina is pretty good because most of South Carolina is water. So it's mostly land. But yeah, so I woke up about eight weeks later after the transplant. Had no idea what was going on. I was really confused. Mm -hmm. I had tubes and wires everywhere, had a trach, so I couldn't talk, which made it even worse Mm. uh, just because I couldn't communicate my frustration and my anger of why are these tubes hanging out of me? Why do I have one up my nose? You know, why do I have two going down my throat? Then I started looking around and I was skinny. Mm. I had no body fat. I'd gone from 199 pounds to 136 pounds in eight weeks. Wow. I mean, I'd lost so much muscle. Mm -hmm. I couldn't lift my arms. I couldn't do anything with my legs. So the confusion turned to anger Mm -hmm. and nobody was able to understand what I needed. I just, I needed somebody just to sit and just tell me what happened. What is going on? I went to bed on January 8th. Right. And I wake up at the end of February going, what in the heck happened? Mm -hmm. Why? Something went wrong somewhere and somebody needs to explain to me what happened. Mm -hmm. But, you know, after getting over all the confusion, I still stayed hooked up to tubes for probably another five weeks. The trach didn't come out for a while just because, you know, I wasn't eating. I wasn't drinking. I had something called a GJ tube that was straight in my stomach that I'd get my food through. And then I had two IVs in each arm. I had one in my neck. And so everything they needed to do, they could do through one of those ports. Physical and occupational therapy started coming every day to start training my muscles again for use. And it was a very, very long and slow process. So eight weeks later, you wake up, you lose a ton of weight and you can't talk. Like You can't explain any of your anger or frustrations. And I can't imagine how that feels. And then you go through this long recovery process. I'm just wondering through it all, was there anything they didn't tell you? Like anything that caught you by surprise? Like, oh, I wouldn't know that I would have to do this during recovery, or I didn't know that I would have the side effect. Like, did anything kind of catch you by surprise like that? Yeah, there's a lot of stuff they don't tell Mm, you. Interesting. Yeah, let's just think about a couple. Let's see, I'm going blind. I have glaucoma in both my eyes from prednisone. And so they're going to do surgery on one eye first because basically it fixes it or you go blind. There's no getting around that. But yeah, that's one. Um, Tremors. I mean, my hands shake all the time and it's just because of the drugs that I'm taking. Chronic kidney disease. The drugs are destroying my kidneys. Diabetes from prednisone. And let's see. Depression was one of them. Anxiety. I never had anxiety. Man, I had anxiety so bad. Mm -hmm. Memory loss was a big one. You have to see a psychiatrist and a psychologist the whole way through just so you can have somebody to talk to and and 
they check your cognitive ability as you go along. And, you know, my cognitive ability was perfect up until I had the transplant. And, you know, I went back probably eight months after and did the same cognitive tests. And I'd lost 33% of my cognitive ability. Wow. Just off the bat. And then, you know, no libido whatsoever. Mm. You know, I'm a 40 year old guy. Mm. They didn't tell you, you were just going to lose all your libido. Mm. And, uh, you know, that's just some of the things there's, there's probably a laundry list more. I mean, I can't, uh, some of the things I can't do, I can't dig in the garden, you know, because of botulism is in the uh, dirt. Oh, wow. Can't swim in anything, lakes, ponds, rivers, oceans, pools, nothing ever again. Did you enjoy swimming and gardening before? Oh yeah. Had a ski boat, had a bass boat. I mean, had a lake house. You know, and and we just had we got rid of it all. I was like, well, I'm not going to have this stuff. I can't use it. Can't go in the sun, really. I mean, I've had, as you guys saw, I had that big um, skin cancer place cut off my face right under my eye. You know, and I was I haven't been in the sun very much. But you're when you're taking immunosuppression, your body can't fight cancer. So, you know, if you're going to get it, you're going to get it. And that's kind of what happened to me on my face. But yeah, like I say, I mean, it's it's. You just deal with whatever ails you. I mean, if there's no cure all, you just wake up and say, thank God I'm alive. Kiss your wife, kiss your kids. Make sure you have a great day that day. And and you try to uh, talk to somebody or help somebody along the way, no matter what. And it makes it all worth it. What you said just struck me. I don't know what's happened to me recently. Maybe it's the pandemic, but I've recently realize this is going to sound cheesy, but I don't care. Every moment matters. Every encounter you have matters. Like every second, every minute matters. And it's just like, it's, it's hit me so hard recently. And it probably is because of the pandemic, which also it's kind of bizarre that it, it took us going through a pandemic to have that reality hit. So again, I really appreciate everything you're sharing. Yeah. Yeah. It's not a problem. I'm glad I can share it with people. And maybe, you know, somebody will think, God, I thought my life was bad. You know, there's always somebody that has it worse than you. That's what kind of got me through it because I would. And I would go to the cancer center and I hated the cancer center. Mm -hmm. You know, I walked in there and you would see kids waiting to get chemo. Mm -hmm. You know, you would see, you know, mid 20s, you know, early 30s. And you would just see this range of people. Mm -hmm. And it's like, what? They don't deserve that. Right. You know, but I would walk through and say, hey, to him, good morning to him. And then I would go for my infusion, you know, but yeah, there's always somebody that has it worse than you. You think your life stinks? Look around. Right. (laughs) Somebody's got it worse. Yeah. So despite everything, you're still taking the time to volunteer. You're contributing, you're serving in ways that are so cool. Like you're taking your experience to help others who are going through the same thing. Can you shed light onto some things you've been working on? And if COVID has impacted any of that effort for some reason. Yeah, there's, there's three different ways. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm part of something called LifeLink. And the reason for LifeLink is we go out to the community, go out to schools, go out to different hospitals, go out to churches. And we explain about organ donation and why organ donation is so powerful. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of rumors from the old days. You hear it from from the elders, the the grandparents, the great grandparents about organ donation. You know, they think that if you're an organ donor, once you get in the ambulance, you're done. They're not going to try and save you. They're going to rip out your organs Mm. and that's it. 
And so we go into the community and try and expel those, those rumors and say, look, you know, nobody knows if you're an organ donor until you're considered brain dead. You know, that's it. Brain death has to happen before a cordon, transplant coordinator comes in and makes sure or checks the list, the UNOS list, to see if you're an actual organ donor. So nobody before knows that. The doctors don't know it. The nurses don't know it. Absolutely nobody does. So they're going to treat you the best they can up until the point where there's brain death. Yep. You know, if you die from a heart attack or something, most of the time you can't be an organ donor because then they have to worry about clots. You know, they can still do tissue and things like that, skin, tissue, but your heart and your lungs, they're out. But yeah, so about once a month, yeah, once, twice a month, either I'll have a call mm-hmm. and we just do something like Zoom, especially with COVID. Right. We're not doing as many visits out in the community yet. So we'll have a big Zoom call. For example, our last one was with the YMCA. And so we'll meet with a bunch of people from the YMCA on Zoom answer their questions, you know, and provide them documentation about organ donation. And, you know, if I'm out in the community and and I'm talking to somebody, I have an app on my phone. I can just sign them up to be an organ donor right there. Um, Or they can do it when they get their driver's license. You know, they can do it in a lot of different places or just go to unos.com or lifelink.com and you can sign up online as well. Right. You know, the other thing, one of the main things I do is I'm a transplant buddy, which is awesome. So Medical University of South Carolina, they call me, basically say, hey, Trav, you know, we've got a guy right around your age. You know, we don't care about ages. It's just if somebody will understand where I'm coming from and what I've been through, then they'll do it. You know, I had a guy that I was just working with, probably working with four months. He had his transplant, you know, a month ago and he got out of the hospital and went to the apartment yesterday. Wow. So he got through his transplant and he's totally he did really, really well, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, and he went down to the step down unit and then the doctor said, okay, you know, he has to live by the hospital for three months just in case something happens and to go to physical therapy. But yeah, he's doing really well. You know, I, I didn't hear from him for probably a week after his transplant and mm. I get a call from him, made me cry. Mm. I was like, man, I thought something happened to you. You know, I hadn't heard from you in a mm. week. He said, I guess I just needed sleep or something. <laughs> so I was like, all right. And lastly, this one's gone. Yeah. It, it hasn't happened very much during COVID. Nursing homes, mm-hmm. you know, during the the transplant time, I realized what it was to be lonely mm-hmm. at night. And it can really be an awful feeling because they really don't want your loved ones spending the night with you in the hospital. And so my wife left every night and I was left there, you know, from like seven until, you know, eight o'clock the next morning. So, you know, I started going to nursing homes and just talking to people. And I love hearing him talk about the good old days, mm-hmm. you know, back in the good old days, we could do this or we did this. And especially the old gentleman talking about the cars and, you know, the things they used to do to the cars and the drag racing and just the way things used to be. And you can tell it's important to them. They just want somebody to talk to, to take an hour out of the week and just spend some one-on-one time, make them feel like they're the only person in this world. Mm-hmm. You know, it's worth a million bucks. Yeah. So those are some of the ways I get back. Now I'm thinking of my Grammy and Grampy. You had me tearing up a little bit. I used to love hearing their stories. Mm-hmm. But going back to the transplant buddies, are you able to stay in touch with them? Oh, yeah. Awesome. Yeah. yeah. So I got to go into the hospital all day tomorrow. 
there's something going on and they've got to do a bunch of testing. I think I know what it is. So I'll probably be in the hospital till Tuesday. Mm -hmm. But you know, it's just one of those things. But he's in an apartment right across the street. So I'm going to have him come visit me in the hospital. So, but yeah, you know, we met in a couple of MUSC meetings online. So I've seen him, but I've never met face to face. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. So that'll be good to meet him. That's great. Okay. So final question for you. What is the biggest lesson you've learned through all of this that you feel like you need to share with the rest of the world? Hmm. I was a pretty stressed out guy before. I always worried about work. I was a company guy. You know, I'd spend, Mm -hmm. stay at work till 10 o'clock, get there at six o'clock in the morning. You know, I'd I'd miss family engagements for releases going out. Wow. Yeah. Now I kind of, I don't do that anymore. (laughs) Good. Yeah. Sorry, sorry, progress, but um, enjoy each day. Mm-hmm. Like you're not going to have tomorrow. We've adopted this policy. Is you know we take a week vacation like once a quarter, mm-hmm. and we just go. We reconnect with family. My wife and I reconnect. Mm-hmm. You know we recharge our batteries. I go fishing. They go walking on the beach or mm-hmm. you know hiking or whatever. All I need is a beach chair and a fishing pole. You know, and I'm good. Yeah. Work's going to be there when you get back. I promise you it will, you know, mm-hmm. unless you do something to get fired when you're on vacation, but I wouldn't recommend that. <laughs> and lastly, honestly, tell the ones you love that you love them. Mm-hmm. That's one thing that's really changed. I mean, I've seen my family, like my father and my brother, you know, they just, they never said the words I love you ever, mm, Wow. ever. And now it's like, it's just different, Mm -hmm. you know? I even tell buddies of mine that best buddies I've known for 30 years, Mm -hmm. you know, it's like, I love you, man. And it's like, it's not, I'm not kidding, Mm -hmm. you know, because they've grown to be my family as well. And if something were to happen to them, you know, I want them to know that's the way I felt about them. Yeah. So that's pretty much it, you know, just, just don't let life pass you by, Mm -hmm. you know? Because it will, and it does pretty quick. And then you turn around, and you're like, oh my God, my kid's 10. Oh my gosh, my kid's five. And oh my gosh, my kid's 20. You know, it does. It'll pass you by pretty quick. I wholeheartedly agree with what you said about telling the people you love that you love them. Because for some bizarre reason, it's not something that people get in the habit of doing, which I don't understand why. It's kind of like people think like, oh, it's guaranteed. You're my brother. You're my parent. I love you. But also like saying it is good. Yeah, <laughs> like, uh, making it known. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it is. It's just really good to hear it. And, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, maybe that person just needed it that day. Exactly. Okay. And now I'm thinking of a movie of about time, but I'm not going to get into that because that's like a tangent. So, all right, taking it back. Okay. <laughs> so... <laughs> Are you ready for the rapid fire round? I am. Okay. So with these questions, you just need to respond with one word or one statement. Okay. So when you were younger, what did you want to be when you grew up? Uh, Professional baseball player, uh, catcher. Specific with a catcher. Cool. What was the last show that you binged and loved? Burn Notice. I've never seen it, but I should probably watch it. Yeah, it's good. Yeah. It's a good one. <laughs> What's your favorite game to play with your kids? It's a game called Farkle. F-A-R-K-L-E. I don't know, but it's just called Farkle, and it's really fun for kids and adults, too. Again, I've never heard of it, but that's cool. <laughs> <laughs> Something to Google. Okay. 
What is the best compliment you've ever received? Uh, my dad telling me he was proud of me. Hmm. Yep. Can I ask if it's a story with that one? Um, I'd never heard it before. And I was 37. Mm, wow. Yeah, that was probably it. That's awesome. Yep. Okay. Final question for you. What is the one thing people get wrong about you? They think I'm intimidating. When I shave my head bald and I grow the beard out, people just think I'm intimidating. Mm. The voice, it's not, I don't know how to explain it. If I want something, I'm going to tell you I want it. Mm -hmm. And I say it with the voice I'm using now. It's not forceful, but it's with intent maybe. Mm -hmm. But uh, that's the way you get people's attention. Mm -hmm. You know, if you want to say something and you want them to pay attention, you speak in a certain tone and they go, oh, okay. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when I'm being serious, I'm still not being that serious. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not the end of the world, but... My kids, when I use this tone, they think, oh, my gosh, I'm getting yelled at. And, mm. you know, my 10-year-old cries and I'm like, I'm not even yelling. You know, I'm just using a stern voice. Right. But, yeah, I mean, I'm just a big old teddy bear, mm -hmm. you know. I mean, I, I am intimidating sometimes at work because I expect a lot out of people, mm -hmm. you know, and I think you should. Mm -hmm. You know, we work for a great company. We, we're doing great things and people get paid good salaries to do their job. And mm -hmm. I should hold you to a standard that you were hired mm. to do. And so, yeah, sometimes they can't think I'm a jerk or intimidating and I'm not. I just want people to work hard and, and be proud of what they do. So that's it. You somehow got into the whole progress proud theme right now, yeah. like working together to do great work, holding ourselves accountable to do that work for a good company. Yeah. Love it. It's like you planned it to end that way. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> Also, that last question was totally, the response was an essay, not a sentence, but we're going to let it slide because that was a really good answer. Sorry. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> totally yeah, fine. Yeah, my bad. My look and my tone. Well, <laughs> let's just keep that. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I think this was a really great conversation. I really appreciate you having me on. If anybody out there has any questions, we can put my information in the show notes and... Y'all can reach out to me that way. All right. Well, thank you for your time today, Travis. Thank you so much for having me. I hope you enjoyed the conversation with Travis Gibson. The organizations he supports are linked in the description. So please check them out and see how you can support their causes. We're looking forward to introducing you to more people who make up progress. So stay tuned for more episodes and keep making us progress proud. Progress proud.